that didn't feel true to me either because I've experienced a ton of friends at this point who were completely shut down to their sexuality and desire and were shamed into abstinence and then got married. And guess what? Shame doesn't disappear when a ring goes on our finger. If we don't have a holistic vision of sex and sexuality and if we say it's bad and wrong and then all of a sudden in a flip of a switch it's good, that shame doesn't go away. And so I see culture obsessed with sex and then the church telling us not to be obsessed with sex and to shut it down. But when someone tells you, don't think of an elephant, but don't think of an elephant, what are you going to think about? The an elephant. elephant. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the You and I podcast. This week, we have Kat Harris, a Brooklyn-based online educator, digital content creator, female empowerment advocate, and writer of Sexless in a City. Here's our conversation with Kat. Welcome to the You and I podcast, a space where we share stories to uplift while reflecting and working on ourselves. My name is Ozzy. And I'm Kara. And here we engage in conversations centering on sisterhood, wellness, spirituality, and more. Join us each week as we learn and grow together. Well, first things first, I want to welcome you back to the You and I podcast. Last season, you so eloquently taught us all about relationships, clarity, defying like differing beliefs in relationships and working on yourself while single. But we wanted to bring you back and dive deeper and talk more about your book, Sexless in the City. So I want to thank you again for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me again. And it's so good to see y'all's faces again. And I'm just really excited to talk about sex, baby. Talk Let's about, talk you, about and you and me. <laughs> That's like been on repeat throughout this whole season. I'm like, I get to talk about sex all the time. Okay. I love that. Sex and God. All right, let's do it. <laughs> okay, really quick question. This wasn't even on, I guess, the list of questions we had, but if you could think of like a really good song about sex, what would it be that correlates with the book? Oh my gosh. Definitely that song. Let's talk about sex, baby. Because so much of what I'm doing is really trying to normalize the conversation, especially in faith circles, about talking about sex. God created it. God designed it. There's no shame in sexual desire. So I feel like, though, maybe another one. Um, Drunk in Love by Beyonce. Ooh. That song is so good. So good. Had that on replay. I was just doing a cycle class, which is why I'm sweaty right now, and Beyonce Drunken Love was playing. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, in the book of Song of Solomon, when the king and the bride are going off to have sex, their friends and family say, go eat, drink, and be drunk on love. I love that. Was that, was Beyonce inspired by the Lord? Good question. Good question. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) (laughs) Beyonce reads the Bible, guys. Here we go. Well, yeah, you wrote a book. Like, that's that's a crazy, crazy feat. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I just can't. I'm just so happy for you. I feel like writing a book is super different than a lot of other, I guess, accomplishments, um, you know, I would say. From that, why is writing a book so much more different to social media posts or just anything else? Yeah. I mean, the big difference is, one, a social media post is usually 250 characters or less, right? The book that I wrote was around 60,000 words. So in an Instagram post, Instagram posts, it's the difference between doing a reel, which is 15 seconds, and a manuscript. So it's one thing to talk about something for a few seconds. It's another thing to talk about it for 60,000 words. And I also think with social media, you can delete things, right? I can change my mind. I can delete that post. 
I can take that back. But when I have something in a book, it's there forever. And so I think the pressure and responsibility that I put on myself to make sure I was staying rooted in truth, staying truthful to my story and not exaggerating and not leaving certain things out and staying rooted biblical truth and also giving myself the space to realize I can stay as truthful as possible in this book. And in 10 years, I could believe something totally different. And so I think there's something that has just felt so vulnerable about that. It's one thing to share my story with a group of friends, even with a group of strangers on social media. Another thing to think, wow, my aunt just texted me today and she just pre-ordered my book. So that means if she reads it, she's gonna know every single intimate detail about my sexual life. I just feel like I'm walking around the street naked all the time. (laughs) I love that analogy right now metaphorically and i've never felt more vulnerable in my whole life just vulnerable wow how was the process of like just pulling back those walls and writing it into a book and just like exposing yourself i know that on social media you're always open and always talking about like everything that people basically ask you about but what exactly was it like to kind of just like pull back those walls and be able to be that vulnerable with yourself and kind of display that to others yeah I mean it was a struggle fest because we can probably all agree it's one thing to talk about vulnerable things like sex is a vulnerable thing to talk about it's another thing to be vulnerable about my story here's my past here is what I have gone through here is where I have felt really rejected by God by the church by my dad by friends by culture by that guy that I really, really like. And so I think every day was just a different journey. I remember when I was writing the chapter on what is sex and what is virginity, it took me two days in my schedule to write that. And I think it took me three weeks because as I was unpacking the chapter, God was dealing with my own heart. I didn't realize how much my relationship with Jesus had become enmeshed with virginity. I didn't realize if I changed my definition on sex that I might not be a quote unquote virgin anymore. And I didn't realize how much I still worshiped that. And so each layer was not just me writing about a topic. It was about me digging into my own story. I was constantly texting with my publisher, with my agent, with friends. I can't do this. I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I have it in me. I don't know how to do this. I feel like you're asking me to breathe underwater and I've never breathed underwater before. And you're just telling me like Peter to go walk on the water and that seems humanly impossible. So I think what I just had to do is I just had to sit down and do the damn thing. I love that. It was so much easier to talk about writing a book than actually sitting down and writing it. That was hard. Sitting with myself, sitting with my story, sitting with the disappointments in my story. I'm 35 years old. I'm single. I don't have a boyfriend right now. I thought, oh, I think I'm going to write this book and the end of the story is going to be like, and voila, while I was writing my book, I met a guy and we're married and we have babies. No, I'm still single as a dollar bill. Just working through my own story as I'm writing it, it has been very revealing. I've, I've been saying this past week if you want all your deepest darkest demons to come to the surface if you want all your insecurities out there write a book (laughs) because it just it just 
I'm grateful for it and also I just can't escape it. I just feel so vulnerable. Going off of our last interview, you said that you grew up in the Christian South and a lot of the beliefs down there was kind of just like very strict, very more um, conservative towards our Bible beliefs. I'm saying our because I'm also a follower of Christ. I wanted to know what was it like specifically you moving to New York City and kind of how was it just getting out of like traditional beliefs or kind of just adapting overall to life in the city? Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. So I went from Bible Belt South to Southern California. And a lot of people think, oh, California, that's a blue state. Well, I lived in Newport Beach, California, which people, what's that like? It's like Dallas, Texas at the beach. (laughs) It is very conservative. I think I, I consider it the second Bible Belt. So I went from sort of one concert, culturally Christian, conservative, evangelical space to another very evangelical, conservative, very Republican space. And it really wasn't until I moved to New York City that I left that safety net of Christian culture. Because for so much of my life, even before I was a Christian, Christianity was the air I breathed. And so even if you weren't a Christian growing up in the South, you're very familiar with it. The the language, the jargon, there's churches on every street corner. You go to football games on Friday night, you go to church on Sunday with all the people you partied with all weekend. And then similar in Southern California, the people you went surfing with all weekend long, you're going to church with on a Sunday. The friends you smoked weed with on Friday, you're going to Bible study with during the week. And so one of the distinct reasons why I moved to New York outside of I was I was an M an editorial photographer. I wanted to build my name in the fashion industry and New York City is being in the right place at the right time all the time if you are in the in the fashion industry. So I did that, but I also really wanted to get out of a culturally Christian space. The more I learned about who Jesus was and is, the more I found that Jesus always went towards the people in spaces that weren't religious. Jesus was constantly surrounded by people who didn't share his Jewish background and his Hebrew background. He was friends with a Samaritan woman. He was friends with the tax collectors. He moved towards the ostracized. So I thought, what better place to go than New York City? (laughs) So what it was like moving there was, it was a breath of fresh air to meet people each and every day who didn't know the Christian lingo and to be a part of churches where people didn't know, oh, I shouldn't be sleeping with my boyfriend. So openly they're talking about it at small group and praying about their sex life with their boyfriends. And my legalistic Southern brain was like, do they know they're not following the rules? (laughs) It wasn't cool to go to church on Sunday. I remember my mom came and visited me one week and I was going to a church at the time and it, it met in a a sticky, slimy bar on a Sunday and it still smelled like weed and and tequila on Sunday mornings. We would always have to mop the floors because it was so sticky with alcohol. And often there weren't even enough chairs so we were sitting on the floor and then there were barricades in the way so you couldn't even see the stage. So might as well just be listening on your headphones. And it took me 45 minutes to get there on multiple trains. It was like, I I felt as though I was my grandpa. I was uphill both ways in the snow. And my mom was like, I don't understand why people are Christians in New York. It's so inconvenient. And I was like, yeah, it is. But in New York, my faith 
became my own in such a new way, Jesus became the air I breathed because I needed Jesus in a way that I didn't need Jesus when everyone expected me to need and want Jesus. And so when it came to dating, it was a completely different experience. I dated more in one year than I dated in a whole decade. I did online dating, I, I got setups, I met guys at bars, and I learned real quick that it's much harder not to have sex when you're dating someone, much less when you fall in love with someone. So I was in a very interesting space of really figuring out my faith without the safety net of Christian culture and then getting to a place on the heels of a breakup where I realized I have no idea why I am not having sex outside of marriage, outside of my pastors told me so when I grew up. And I think the Bible tells me so, but I've never done the work on my own to see if it actually says it. It was a really interesting experience moving to New York as a person of faith. And even like talking about New York, you know, the part where Jesus would leave the 99 to go save the one. And I just, I love that he's the type of person that does that. He, as you said, he literally, he's here for the lost. While, you know, the found people are amazing, primarily here to save those who are sick, those who are lost. And kind of going off of that, when we talk about the deconstruction phase of your book, it seems like when it comes to sex, there's that saying that we should be in the world, but not of the world. Um, and especially when it comes to sex and purity and waiting till after marriage to have sex. But what are your thoughts on that, on the idea of kind of there's the teachings of the Bible, teachings of Jesus, but then there's also how the world views sex? Yeah, I feel like there's a couple different ways to approach it. And as I zoomed out of my own experience, I said, okay, so it seems as though the culture is giving me this message of instant gratification. Do what feels good. Live your truth. If you're hungry, get some food. If it itches, scratch it. If you want it, buy it. And you are entitled to have whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want it. My Uber Eats app alone tells me so. <laughs> and what I found is that instant gratification often overpromises and underdelivers, And it also breathes and lives off the assumption that I am my desire and that I am the sum of my urges. Rob Bell talks about that in his book, Sex God, that often culture views humans much like animals, that we just can't help ourselves. And once the wheels are set in motion, there's no stopping us. He says it's why you hear people talk about sexual encounters in ways of, I don't know, we just couldn't help ourselves. The chemistry was primal. We couldn't keep our hands off of each other. I've experienced those moments and those sort of connections with guys where I'm like, oh my gosh, take off my clothes right now. You are so hot. Let's make out. And so that was sort of what I experienced culturally. And then often in the church, it was this whole other extreme side of the pendulum where instead of I am my desire, it was shut down your desire. Your desire is gross. Sex is taboo. We don't talk about sex. We don't think about talking about sex. We don't think about talking about sex. It's bad. It's disgusting. Your body's bad until... One magical day when a ring slides down your finger and then you become married. And then this nice little box you've put on a shelf opens up and with one flip of the switch, you go from being an asexual robot to a lady in the street, but a freak in the bed. And that didn't feel true to me either because I've experienced a ton of friends at this point who were completely shut down to their sexuality and desire and were shamed into abstinence and then got married. And guess what? Shame doesn't disappear when a ring goes on our finger. If we don't have a holistic vision of sex and sexuality, and if we say it's bad and wrong, and then all of a sudden in a flip of a switch, it's good 
kid, that shame doesn't go away. And so I see culture obsessed with sex and then the church telling us not to be obsessed with sex and to shut it down. But when someone tells you, don't think of an elephant, but don't think of an elephant, what are you going to think about? The an elephant. elephant. <laughs> it's the oldest trick in the books. By trying not to make it the thing, the church made it the thing. So really, in my experience, the church and the culture are really two sides of the same coin and both are worshiping sex. But one is more overt with it and one is more shaming about it. And then I think of Jesus. What's the way of Jesus? Jesus was always bursting through cultural and societal norms and religious norms. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying repeatedly, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. In other words, culture may have said this, the religious folk may have said this, but I'm casting a new vision. When the woman was caught in adultery, societally and culturally, she deserved death. The punishment for that was death. In religion, she also deserved death because sin equals death. So the religious bring the woman to Jesus to test him. What's Jesus gonna do? Is Jesus going to kill her as he religiously and culturally should? And he showed another way. He got down to her eye to eye, looked her in the eye, and offered her relationship, acceptance, dignity, fought for her. And he said, you who's without sin, throw the first stone. So Jesus was just constantly blowing the whole thing out of the water. I think that Jesus casts a countercultural and counter church narrative about sexuality. And I think it starts in the first pages of scripture. Genesis 1, God created the universe and said it was good. And then Genesis 1, 26 through 31, God breathed the breath of life into humanity and did something very distinct from everything else. God gave humans the God image, whether you're a Christian or not. Whatever you do or do not do, whatever you believe or do not believe, you have the God image in you. So I am human. I exist. I breathe. I matter. Period. The end. You're, and oh, go ahead. Keep going. I'm so sorry. You're dissecting this so well. I just wanted to know, have you always been so in tune with the word? And how did you kind of get to that point to be able to pull back and understand like deeper what all of these words mean? Because me, I read the Bible at times. I call Ozzy. I'm like, I don't know why this happened what's going on why did this happen so how did you get to that point to be able to dissect the word and be so in tone to kind of understanding it more in your own eyes yeah well first of all i'm about almost 20 years into my faith and i'm the same way i have voice memo with some of my best friends i'm reading through the old testament right now i voice memoed one of my past friends the other day and i said wtf abraham abused his power and it seems like god is blessing abuse of power i don't understand this david is a, is a man after god's own heart he raped a woman and then murdered her husband and then hid it but yeah he's a man after god's own heart what the hell is that about I don't ever take things at face value. And I've never been that way. If you were to say, oh, these pens are the best pens ever and you should only use these pens. The first thing I would say to you is why? Why? Are there Amazon reviews? <laughs> <laughs> what are the statistics on the pens? And so I think I've always been a why person. I've never accepted things at face value and I don't think we ever should especially when it comes to our faith and worldview. I don't ever want to accept someone else's sound bites as gospel truth before I do my own examination. And maybe that's cynicism. But one thing that really helped me was when I was very early on in my faith, one of my pastors said at the end of a sermon, he said, don't take my word for it. He's like, in fact, doubt 
and question everything I just taught you. You go read your Bible, find out what it says. And I was like, oh, okay. Then when I entered Bible school, one of the first books my professors gave me was called Your Mind Matters by John Stott. It's a tiny little book. Everyone should read it. It's like $5 on Amazon. But basically it said God created us with minds and logic and rhetoric. And so use them, the glory of God. Don't just take other people's word for it. Do your own work. I think in that we have Bibles and they're thousands of years old. At this point, we have how many different translations of the Bible. We don't really know what the original intent was by just reading the verses. There's multiple definitions for the word love in the Greek and Hebrew language. And so I think for me to answer your question, it started with a posture of curiosity. Wow, okay, this verse in Ephesians 5 says to submit to my husband, that seems whack. And it also seems really out of alignment with other stuff that I read. Proverbs 31 seems to be this wildly progressive call on who the godly woman is. She's business savvy. She's an entrepreneur. She has investment property and owns multiple businesses and uses her voice and influence to make positive impact on her community and family. That seems really out of alignment with a verse that seems to be oppressive towards women. So when I found inconsistencies, I allowed myself to research it. I went to Google, I Googled commentaries, I Googled what does, what's the Greek word used here for submission? And so I just, I read a lot. I want to get your take on that actually when it comes to just being a woman of Christ and being a woman in this Christianity that we live in. And it's amazing how you have a whole section in your book about femininity and being a feminist. So from there, what is your definition of, first of all, feminism? And do you think the Bible and the teachings of the Bible, regardless of the version, do you think it's feminist? I do. Definitely, dude. God is for women. I think Jesus would be a feminist today. And my definition of feminism comes from Chiminanda Gozziadici. Yes. Oh my gosh. One of my favorite women in the whole world, her TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminists, was also turned into a book called We Should All Be Feminists. That book is so good. Everyone should read it. It's also in Beyonce's song, Flawless. (laughs) She does an excerpt from it. But a feminist is a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. I would add to that sexual equality. I would add to that religious equality. But it is saying that God created humans with equal value, worth, and dignity. Men aren't better than women. Let's go to the text. God created humans, male and female, in his image and his likeness and called them very good. He wasn't like, but the guy is is a little bit better. (laughs) And, And the girl is a little bit dumber and weaker. No. Never. We are made in the image of God. And then we see throughout the pages of scripture how much we all suffer when women are kept out of the God story. We see that when Abraham abuses his position of power with his wife, Sarah, and prostitutes her out multiple times. God punishes them for that. We see that when the opposite of that, God uses Queen Esther, who was in a position that was oppressive, but God still used it somehow for good. Queen Esther used her voice and influence with the king to put a stop to a genocide of her people. We see Ruth, who married outside of her faith 
And then her husband died. And then she went and moved to a foreign land with her bitter mother-in-law. She was the breadwinner for her family. And then ended up sneaking into her boss's house at night, went into his bed and proposed marriage to him. I mean, that would be wildly provocative today. (laughs) How many times today do we hear of a woman proposing to a man? And then we see women in the New Testament helping fund the ministry of Jesus. Women like Phoebe and Joanna and Lydia. Lydia in Romans, who was a business owner and a successful businesswoman, was an early church leader. We see God could have used anyone to reveal the savior of the world and he chose to use a woman's body to bring the savior of the world into existence and then in the resurrection of jesus jesus could have revealed himself to anyone in any way but he chose to reveal himself to a woman first i'm not saying this to say god likes women more than men I'm just saying, if we're going to look at scripture, we have to look at the whole of scripture. And women are an integral, equal part of the God story. The wisdom in the Old Testament is always used in the feminine. The spirit of God in the Old Testament was a feminine word. Adonai is feminine. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament, when it's talked about the feminine, we've masculinized God. We have, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is feminine. And so do I think Jesus believes in the social, political, economic equality of the sexes? You bet. 1000% without a doubt in my mind. And I just think the church needs to catch up. Tired of hearing conversations where women don't have a space in church because it just feels so against the ways of Jesus to me. Well, I completely agree. I completely agree. I love that. It just like always all the time, whenever I hear like common things within my church, I'm just like, but that's also too why I started branching out into other forms of Christianity because I initially grew up a Roman Catholic, but (laughs) I kind of just want to move into the future and kind of reflections. And I wanted to know what did you get out of your book, Sexless in the City, personally? What did I get out of it? Yes. I think I discovered God that didn't have such a fragile ego like I thought God might. I thought, oh my gosh, if I give myself permission to out loud say, I don't really know if I believe the Bible says not to have sex outside of marriage. I thought even admitting that that was a doubt for me would mean I was a bad Christian. I realized God doesn't doubt. God doesn't judge my doubts. In fact, in the New Testament, When a father was going to Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son, Jesus goes, do you believe who I am? And the father said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed the father's son and said, your faith has made him well. Jesus didn't despise or judge or condemn the father for not having a perfect faith. In fact, he really honored his honesty. So I realized in my process, I'm allowed to doubt. Doubting doesn't make me a bad Christian. Doubting makes me human. Look at Peter. Peter lived and breathed with Jesus and saw miracles all the time. And Peter got it right sometimes and he got it really wrong sometimes. And yet Jesus allowed the church to be built on the back of Peter after Jesus died. And so I just realized I have the permission to ask. I have the permission to seek. I have the permission not to take sound bites from social media or one-liners that sound really sexy and and clappable and amenable from the pulpit and say, well, wait a second, what's the belief underneath that belief? I am allowed to dig through my faith. And I think what I thought would happen is if I really questioned my faith, that what would be exposed was that Jesus wasn't trustworthy. 
and that I wanted to walk. I thought if I doubted and let myself doubt and research, I would walk away from my faith completely. And yet my faith is stronger than it's ever been. And it's more my own than it's ever been. So I'm so grateful for that. On the heels of the book, I realized my sexual desire isn't bad. My body isn't bad. In fact, New Testament says that my physical body is a house for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't reside in bad things. My body is a house for the holy. It's not disgusting to talk about sex. God dedicated a whole book in the Bible about sex and foreplay. So if God isn't ashamed of sex, I don't have to be ashamed of sex. Does the Bible actually say not to have sex outside of marriage? It actually does. I found that while I wrote my book. (laughs) It actually does say that. I was like, oh, it does say it. Okay, good to know. But I think the biggest thing that I found was that God has so much space for us. I love that. Like being in a relationship with God isn't like being in a room in a house. I used to think if we're all, all us Christians, we're in this house and we're running from room to room, playing, reading, hanging out, going down to the kitchen table for dinner. And I feel like what happened to me is I found out that there was a door that led outside. I went outside and everyone freaked out. And I went outside and there was still a fence around the property, but it was like I was on a, a, at a winery. There were acres and acres to run and play and fields and ponds and mountains. I think I freaked a lot of people out in my faith community for leaving my bedroom. And really what I discovered is God is out in the fields too. He's not just at our kitchen tables or in our bedrooms or in our quiet times. God is so much bigger than we could ever think or else he would be God. True. And I guess for our last question, and it's kind of similar to, I guess, the question Karenique asked, but what is something you want every reader to remember when it comes to your book and the message you're trying to share? That's such a good question. What comes to my mind is that rules without vision aim to produce conformity through shame, but God transforms us through love. And story, what was Jesus always doing? Let me tell you a story. Stories and parables. Stories and parables. Stories and parables. Those parables weren't stories from the Old Testament. He was giving stories. Parables are stories that would have been relevant to the people of his time. He wasn't just always quoting the Old Testament. He did a lot. He was constantly fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament. He was telling stories, compelling stories to share the God vision. Story and love change people's life. And so I found, yeah, there's invitations in scripture that encourage us to abstain from sexual activity outside of marriage. That's a real thing. Then there has to be a heart. What's the heart? What's the why? And when I discovered, wow, God cares about our pleasure. God cares about our intimacy. God cares about our relationship. God actually isn't a killjoy. God doesn't have a low view of sex. God has a really high view of sex and a robust, multifaceted vision of sex. In fact, when we see in Genesis 1, when Adam knew Eve after they got married, that word there is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A. I mean, they had sex. Do you know that's the same Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament for God knowing us? It might sound, oh, God's having sex with us. No, what it what it means it's this robust multifaceted word for this mind body soul spirit integrated manifestation of relationship so sex is this physical expression of a mind body soul spirit commitment to another person wow yes wow to me that's beautiful 
I'm like, I don't, I don't want a wham, bam, thank you, man. Never, never again. Yes, I want to be in a relationship with another person that I trust and that I see and who sees me fully. My good, but maybe even more so my cellulite and my junk. <laughs> You know, and that's what God is saying to us. God knows us and accepts us and wants us. That's the beauty of God's love for us is that God doesn't need us. God's not codependent with creation. God wants us. God desires us. In the psalm, the psalmist says, I pant, I long, I thirst for you, God. That's like visceral love language. That's like what we would say, man, I just, I want my lover, right? Like I want my partner. I desire him. That's the beauty of romantic relationship, right? Not that I need or I'm obligated to that person, but that I want and desire and see them fully and I'm naked and unashamed with them. And that I am willing to wait for that. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Kat. I loved every part of it. I, oh my gosh, even when I read the book, a part of Ephesians, when you talked a lot about marriage and like what it's actually supposed to be, I didn't want marriage before. Now I want to be married. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and talking more about your book. And congratulations, like writing a book is is like a big thing. So we wish you the best in, you know, promoting it and just making sure that it reaches people who God feels needs to be reached. So, you know, once again, thank you. Ladies, I appreciate that so much. And I think so highly of both of y'all. And I'm just grateful that I get to reconnect with you. And and yeah, so if anyone is listening, if you want to know more about my book, you can go to sexlessinthecitybook.com. I have a book trailer that's about a minute long that is just kind of sharing with you in visual cinematic format what it's about. You can order the book on there. You can pre-order it and all that good stuff is right there. So I would just just appreciate y'all support and I'm just grateful to get to talk with y'all again and see your faces. Oh, and everyone who are audio listeners like I am, you can pre-order it on Audible. I already did. Oh! Coming out April 20th, guys. Look out. And I read it. It's my voice. She loves the audiobooks. <laughs> it's my it's voice. your voice? So you, get, you get to have oh, my looking for loud it. mouth voice in your ear for, I don't know, 15 hours? I don't know, however long it took. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the UNI Podcast. For more information and links to everything discussed in this episode, check our show notes below. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating and share it with the people you love. We hope you have a transformative day. Sending love and gratitude.